1420, in the town of Wakefield on the island of Great Britain, a play was recorded in a manual of scripts for the local Corpus Christi pageant. The play has come to be known as the Second Shepherd's Pageant and marks, arguably, the first ever British comedy. The play's significance is considerable. Not only do we see a sophisticated plot structure that had been absent in medieval drama, we see the play notifying us of the fundamental changes that modernity is going to bring to the world. It's important for contemporary analysis as the modern era comes to a close. And I, Stuart Parker, and Dan Jennison, our interviewer, will be talking about this play in a total of seven segments, explaining the rise of modernity and the forces that are beginning to tear at its edges. In this second episode of Los Altos Radio, we're going to be taking a look at sheep. What the new prevalence of these sheep, these shepherds, and these weavers really means when it comes to demography, ecology, and the change in our labor systems, heralding the arrival of capitalism and the present order. At uh, the beginning of the 14th century, the Black Death starts to take hold. We see populations fall. And one of the first ways that labor shortages are manifest is by a change in the calculus of agriculture. The use of plows increases when there's population loss. And so we see um, the hoe switching to the plow when you have a demographic collapse. But another feature, of course, is how is what technology we use to extract nutritional value from land. Um, an expensive technology with low labor inputs um, is ungulates. You put sheep, goats, cows on your land. They're expensive, they're inefficient, but they can suck nutrients out of the soil in ways that cost you less labor than doing uh, hoe agriculture or even doing plow agriculture in most cases. So a standard response to a demographic collapse in agriculture is um, the switching of agricultural land to pastoral or agro-pastoral land use. It's the meat, it's the milk. Um, so, right, if you're, uh, if you're doing hoe agriculture at a valley bottom, um, you know, you've got a bunch of people per mile working that land. The number of shepherds you need um, for sheep on the same amount of land is a very small fraction. Mm -hmm. So, yes, by using uh, plows versus hoes, you can cut some of your labor costs, but there are also materials costs for... Um, 
plows because, of course, they require iron. You can't have a bronze, uh, bronze plow. In any case, the response to the rat migration, the Black Death, um, is not merely based on demographic, uh, demographic loss. It's also caused by the fact that um, land is getting colder and wetter. So there's all kinds of land that even if you have the labor, is no longer going to be productive of barley or flax or rye simply because uh, the climate is shifting. All through Europe, all kinds of areas that were agricultural land become only viable for pastoralism, and all kinds of areas that are agricultural land that could still be viable are nevertheless more profitable or more efficient to turn over to animals. Um, and of course, this is all taking place ad hoc. One of the strongest immaterial incentives in Europe following it becoming identified with a non-pluralistic Christian order where there's no toleration of Muslims, there's no toleration of pagans, there's a strong Christian identity through much of Europe. One of the things that this forces is a particular kind of trade. Without wine, the Eucharist can't function. So people's ability to communicate with God, their political order has a material root. You can't replace the wine with beer because the wine is scriptural. So one of the things that we've got to remember about high medieval Europe and even early medieval Europe is that there's a powerful wine trade. Christianity can't function without wine. And so Northern Europe has long been, by the early 14th century, a major net importer of wine. Scandinavia and the British Isles in particular are huge net importers, major trade deficits that they run to stay Christian. And Protestantism places a particular emphasis on scripture, is that correct? The requirement for the wine is um, something that is more deeply felt by Roman Catholics. Prior to the Reformation, you have certain kinds of Christianity. You have Orthodox Christianity, you have Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and you have Roman Catholic Christianity. And um, Roman, Roman Catholicism places the greatest emphasis on wine of those three. And later, even as we move into the present, Roman Catholicism views the sacrament of the Eucharist and its literal use of wine as incredibly important. Uh, now, the Baptists today, who, are, who have largely moved into a position of scriptural fundamentalism, who reject the idea that they interpret scripture at all, they think they take it all literally, um, celebrate the Eucharist with grape juice, as do the Mormons. Um, as a kid in the United Church, I had uh, grape juice for the Eucharist. Right, and that's because of the United Church's Methodist origins. So the Catholic attachment to the wine is a complex one, and it's not driven by text. It's driven by what we might term sacramental magic. It's the understanding salvation is taking place because the priest is at the front of the church intermediating between you and God. You can't do this by yourself. 
you need this guy and he's been given a set of special skills and powers that are monopolized by an oral tradition that traces all the way back to uh, St. Peter, the first Pope. And so the idea is in the Roman Catholic and in the Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox theories, there's something called Episcopal authority, where there are two separate streams of authority. One is scripture, and one is the office of bishop. And that as long as there is an unbroken succession of bishops, uh, you could trace any priest back to St. Peter in Rome in, uh, at the beginning, that tradition carries unwritten knowledge and unwritten powers that are not created by scripture, but are of equal authority to scripture and parallel to scripture. And uh, so it's this magical tradition of secret knowledge with the incense, with the wine, with all of these substances works this way. And it works better the further north you go because people don't see non-sacramental uses of wine. Wine is a magical substance that the church monopolizes. And it can do this magical ritual called transubstantiation and the real presence of Christ and all that good stuff. Very, there's a very good north-south trading roots in Europe. Northern Europe is initially on its back, as usual, because of the climate downturn. The Black Death is a striking example of a time when we see what are called indigenous people actually uh, conquering European territory. This is the time when the Inuit conquer Greenland, uh, sees the entire land mass from the Norse, and it's where, uh, when a group called the Sami who are uh, similar to the Inuit, they're uh, reindeer hunters. They conquer the northern half of Norway and Sweden, moving south from the Arctic, in part with the snow, in part with the fact that they're a pastoralist society, and um, in part because of this demographic collapse that's happening in the north. But certain places in northern Europe start turning this around because another thing happens on the European continent. So where there's a major loss of labor, and we have to think of, well, what, la what industries are highly labor-intensive other than agriculture? And top of the list is textiles. One of the reasons the West has long been an importer of East Asian textiles is its inability to suppress labor costs to the point where our textiles are as cheap to me. That uh, demographic problems have always prevented us from having cheap, high-quality textiles that are produced domestically. Nevertheless, the end of the 13th century is a zenith in European population. It hasn't been this high in about a thousand years, and that falls off. Now, the European textile business been very, very much based on... Um, Linen and secondarily hemp, but Which linen. Oh, so it's just to, to uh, connect it with part of the earlier uh, uh, answer you gave. Um, this is where flax is really important. Linen yes. is based on flax. Yes, and 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 that these areas can no longer grow flax. Or even if they could, they don't have the labor not just to harvest the flax, but to ret the flax. Right. Um, hemp produces a coarse fiber that doesn't require retting. This additional part of the process 
where you partly decompose the fibers, it makes flax more labor intensive than hemp or cotton. Hemp is coarse, hemp is unpleasant, only the dregs of society wear it. Most of society is working with linen, and linen is good in the high Middle Ages because it's multiply reusable and layerable. So the advantages of linen as the hegemonic textile are if it's uh, too warm or too cold, you can change the number of layers you're wearing. So it's an easy to customize fabric because it's not too thick. It's, and it's smooth, uh, draped easily. The next reason people like linen is when it's no longer holding together as your clothes, um, you can use it the way you would use goat skin or sheep skin clothing. Um, uh, or rather not clothing, but you could use it, you use processed goat skin or sheep skin and write on it. Parchment. Yes. So parchment, uh, you know, goat is your standard thing for writing, but for regular folks who are not making bound codices that are designed to last for hundreds of years, the way monks are, the preferred writing material is linen. Uh, so linen stops working as clothes, you turn it into a book, you turn it into note paper. And when you've written all over your linen, um, you wax it and you use it as a wrapping material. So it's hyper versatile, it has a long life cycle, um, it can do, it's an all purpose uh, fiber. But there simply isn't the labor. There isn't the labor and at the same time winters have got significantly colder. So it's not working either from the perspective of manufacture or for the, from the perspective of use. And in the Alpine regions of Europe, there's an obvious answer. People adopt wool. You go from this highly labor-intensive uh, linen to very low, labor uh, very low labor requirements wool. Wool is coarse. Wool has some waterproof properties. Um, but wool is fundamentally a specialized fabric. And so fashion in Europe changes that you go from people dressing essentially the same all year round to having different seasonal fabrics. And wool becomes the winter fiber. Uh, people with wool weaving skills become vastly in demand. They're a pretty low ranked cast because of the bad smell of sheep. Um, they move up dramatically in social hierarchies, weavers, and the cliche of the weaver, right, of the person who doesn't really have the sophistication to be the person they are, epitomized in um, Bottom the Weaver in Midsummer Night's Dream. Even though, uh, interestingly, they, there's another fabric joke in that the theater company are called the Hemp and Homespuns uh, by the Duke. And there's, a, there's another really prominent example of the way these, these wool workers have been elevated. Uh, prob probably the most famous would be Lorenzo um, de' Medici, uh, get, get, getting his start in the, uh, in the wool pits uh, and, and founding his first bank. Yes, yes. So that, um, and that is important to bring in the first bank because the, the, it is a crucial contemporaneous development. The Medicis are, are good to look at the, uh, because first of all, they understand the power of wool, its relevance um, as a material. 
but they also take advantage of a shift in religious thinking. So uh, there are no banks in um, the uh, Roman Catholic world uh, until uh, the uh, rise of the Franciscan movement. The reason you can't have a bank um, is because of Aristotelian economics. Aristotle says objects have objective value. Their value inheres in them. An ounce of gold is worth a certain amount. And we can express these objective and stable values in ratios. Let's say one ounce of gold is eight ounces of silver, is 40 ounces of copper, is 20 ounces of black pepper, um, 30 ounces of Szechuan pepper, etc. Uh, everything can be seen as a ratio in objective value. And this is, um, this is compelling. So, of course, banks are a repugnant idea because they're based on the falsehood that um, 30 pounds of gold this year is worth 36 pounds of gold next year. Uh, or 30 pounds of gold in Milan is worth 36 pounds of gold in London. The idea that simply being at a different location in space-time could alter the value of a substance is repugnant to the Catholics until St. Francis of Assisi dies, his order is established, and these Franciscan monks become very interested in questions of consent. They live in a highly coercive society, and it's this liberal idea of consent that is so problematic today, it wells up in the Franciscan movement. The Franciscans take very seriously, as will other people who care about this theory of value, Christ's statement that he is present, that his church is present, that God is present whenever a small number of his followers gather. And this is the jumping off point for the Franciscans in thinking about value because they, they, think, they think a profound thought that is not wrong. The universe doesn't care what the ratio is between silver and pepper or uh, copper and uh, pitch. It doesn't care about those things. The reason these numbers exist, the reason different things have different amounts of value is because of us, that what creates value is us agreeing that something has a value. That, and so of course, they decide that value is not objective, but intersubjective. And what that means is that as long as we agree that 30 pounds of gold this year equals 36 pounds of gold next year, we haven't just made gold, uh, changed the way gold's value works. We've done the work of God by consensually agreeing to something. And that, and all God's kingdom is, is a set of consensual agreements among people. So, the Franciscans are given a monopoly on running banks because they're the only order in the Catholic Church that agrees that value is intersubjective and not objective. 
<laughs> and is there is there is there anything scriptural regarding usury tied up in any of this? Uh, the jubilees um, are there's no such thing as usury. Um, the jubilees are premised on the existence of usury. So the uh, scripture, uh, I mean, the Old Testament is like, yeah, people are going to build up debt. The debt's going to get out of control. And so we need the jubilees to reset it. It's not that Aristotle doesn't live in a world where that happens or where there is an interest. Aristotle engages with economics like everyone else, which is that it's half descriptive and half aspirational. <clears throat> so he wants to condemn the processes that make the jubilees necessary. So what happens by the 1300s is that private banks come into being based on people's ability to protect that money. And the Medicis have built the kind of military and other forms of power necessary to defend their bank. And it's in this context that the church agrees that their bank is not usurious. It's, um, it's a way um, for, the church is not particularly interested in defending the Franciscan monopoly on finance. It doesn't help the balance of power within the church involving the other orders. Letting the Medicis in on the game ain't so bad. And so they use that wool money to uh, create a financial juggernaut. In Northern Europe, uh, certain economies, especially the English and the Dutch, uh, move very quickly to realizing that they can take all of these, all of this maritime trade, all of these ports that they spend money maintaining to import wine, and they can make their coastal market towns, their coastal market towns realize that if they start exporting wool, this is going to be a source of wealth. It will deal with the trade balance and the infrastructure is already there. The trade routes are already there. Um, people emphasize the Hanseatic League during this period. Um, I use the term the Hanseatic League here in the way that I might use the third world or the non-aligned nations in talking about the 20th century. There is a legal league that certain market towns join that has a set of rules. But there's a larger idea of the Hanseatic League, which is ports on the North Sea, the Baltic Sea, um, the English Channel. Market towns, whether they're formally part of the Hanseatic League or not, are part of a cultural phenomenon where European trade reorients and begins pointing south instead of north. That it's the southern economies that are experiencing the trade deficits because what is beginning is what's called the wool boom. And it's a very long, it's a, it's a sustained period where wool exports keep increasing and countries reconfigure their economies um, for hundreds of years. Um, it's like, um, yeah, it's one of those exponential graphs. There are huge gains. People notice it as a phenomenon by the end of the 14th century, and then it goes on for centuries after that. We should talk about the Hanseatic League and the spirit of entrepreneurship 
that encircles Northern Europe. The kinds of people who come into being in these market towns that have access to navigable uh, water. You're operating in a very tenuous position here in these little towns. Um, you are making deals about moving wine, moving wool, moving other commodities like glass from Southern Europe, uh, which Northern Europeans can now import more of because the trade balance has changed. You're making all kinds of details, right? You're um, wax for the candles for the churches as well. It starts going flowing north. Absolutely. And so the question is, you know, um, should Art Vandelay remain an importer exporter or should he just focus on the importing? I mean, yes, Louis Dreyfus's do come out of this period uh, in uh, uh, in the, the emergence of these these wealthy mercantile lineages. So, one of the first things about these lineages, these groups of people who are are starting to make these big uh, import export deals, they're not aristocrats. This would be unseemly work for the aristocratic, for the most part. You're operating out of cities rather than the country where you live. You're extracting wealth not from the labor of your peasants or from your land, but from nebulous sources elsewhere. You don't have the people at the top of society participating in uh, putting together these huge business deals. You're going to look for people, though, who have a lot of the things that are like aristocrats. You're going to need literacy in at least one language. You're probably going to need to be able to speak at least two languages. Um, and uh, so this means that you're, you're looking at the emergence of the bourgeoisie. This is really the first sign of the European bourgeoisie. Urban, educated, wealthy, but not aristocratic. And oh, need, needing diplomatic skills of the aristocratic class, as you said. Yes, although I would argue that um, the bourgeoisie come out of the courtier class because aristocrats don't actually have diplomatic skills. They delegate that to courtiers. Ah. So the courtiers coach you on how to talk to an aristocrat. Um, the courtier will interrupt the aristocrat to say what the aristocrat meant to say. Ah, okay. uh, the the luxury of of Aristoc, right? The um, no one needs to use the right etiquette to talk to at the aristocratic level. It's uh, the courtiers engaged in intermediation, and of course, the courtier class is one of the places we see uh, the bourgeoisie being drawn from. They have to using only their senses and cultural information make guesses about whether people can follow through on business deals. The law does not reach across these bodies of water. Even if the law did, the enforcement bureaucracies for the law are insufficient to carry the weight of the law, even if it did reach everywhere. You're not gonna be using force of arms. You are gonna be overwhelmingly reliant on trust that the other person's theory of fairness is the same as yours, and that they'll be able to follow through on that theory of fairness, which is kind of a separate question. 
The idea of credit emerges from this, coming out of the uh, Latin verb credere, to believe. Credit is he believed. How do you tell if someone is believable? Should you believe the claims and promises they have made uh, about what's going to happen after you give them your money or give them your wool or give them your wine? So the bourgeoisie, well, one of the first things that's interesting is they, they start out with an adversarial analysis of aristocrats because coming out of the courtier class, right, your primary criticism of aristocrats is their lack of self-control because your job is to be their self-control in another <laughs> body. So the courtier class is highly observant of what aristocrats who lack self-control will do. And they build their theory of credit, of believability, in many ways by inverting their lived experience of dealing with aristocrats. And this is why Eric Idle's criticism, like, you know, that wonderful documentary, The Aristocrats, Eric Idle comes in and he goes, well, this joke makes no sense in England because we actually have aristocrats. You're telling a joke about the gentry. You're telling a joke about the bourgeoisie and how it would be funny that, like, it's just uh, giddy shit covered incest all the time. That is, a, that is something that would hurt the bourgeoisie, that we don't think of the bourgeoisie. But that is exactly what people in a country with an aristocracy think of the aristocrats. Mm. Uh, there's no irony there. So when, when we think about these, uh, this courtier class, um, their criticisms of the aristocracy. So one of the things you should watch for is how many weapons does this person have with them? How recently have the weapons been used? There's that uh, late season Seinfeld episode. Kramer, you didn't tell me he had a gun. Well, he, he, just, uh, he, just, he just carries it with him. Why would he carry a gun with him? Well, you know, in case there's a misunderstanding. Of course there's going to be a misunderstanding. People with guns are always having misunderstandings. And, of course, that's what you learn if you see somebody who has got easy to draw weapons that it looks like they've drawn before. This is a person who's gonna have a series of misunderstandings and they've let you know about all the misunderstandings they're gonna have by being festooned with daggers and rapiers and the like. So that's a thing you look for. Is the person armed and do they appear to be combat ready? If they are, as many aristocrats are, aristocrats love bejeweled daggers and the like, then you don't want to make a deal with them. They don't have credit. They have misunderstandings, which is the opposite of credit. So, um, you know, so you don't want to work with those people. They don't have credit. How else can you use your, your senses? Well, um, one of the other purpose-built items clothing items that's coming into vogue in the 14th century is underwear. And that means you can elevate your standards as to how your interlocutor should smell. If this person is disciplined in changing their small clothes every day, in bathing relatively frequently, these two are signs of self-control. And self-control is the main thing you're measuring when you're measuring credit. So, they smell okay. Not do they have a lot of perfume. Perfume indicates 
that they're buying a luxury good and wasting it by smearing it on their body. The same is true of a lot of jewelry. You see somebody festooned in jewelry, you don't want to hand them a big sack of cash because they might go and spend it on some more jewelry right now. And so you get these little judgments. So the person's clothes should not be ostentatious. The person's uh, the person should not be obviously armed. The person should not be perfumed. The person should smell good anyway. The person should not be bejeweled. Can you smell alcohol on their breath? What time of day is it? How drunk do they need to be to be in this meeting? That's probably important because you're going to assume that however drunk they are to be in this meeting, that's how drunk they generally are. What other information do you have? And that's going to be a good measure of self-control. They're sizing these people up, having to make these spot judgments that, on the one hand, are superficial in that they look at people's surface, but they're not superficial in that they're an inquiry, a predictive inquiry into what this person is going to do. And um, so the last of these is fine clothing, fine, long-lasting clothing. Clothing that a self-controlled person would buy because it fits well because, uh, and is not going to need to be replaced that soon. You don't want to see somebody in cheap clothes, even if they pass all the other tests, because it indicates they might be lying to you about how much money they have for the venture. They may simply lack the liquidity. So you're looking for signs that people are rich rich enough to make a deal with you and rich enough to throw in if the deal goes wrong and you take a bath on it, but at the same time, possessed of so much self-control that none of that money goes astray. Right. So lacking ostentatiousness with the wealth. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. The hard to detect wealth. Fashion matters. Um, the larger, the greater Hanseatic league system depends on an eye for credit and a fashion industry that uh, can express credit. And this, of course, takes on a life of its own. It produces a subculture that is austere and that paradoxically has to appear austere and unostentatious because its public image is everything to be publicly unostentatious. It's paradoxical, but that's the culture of the bourgeoisie of Northern Europe. And this bourgeoisie is tremendously successful through the wool boom. The Reformation in 1517, the people who are propounding its ideas, um, Martin Luther, uh, the princes of Germany, they don't articulate a, a religious theory that is especially attractive to the bourgeoisie. It's um, somewhat attractive, but it's not compelling um, in representing a class interest or a class allegiance. It's interested in um, reconfiguring the church as a client-server network rather than a peer-to-peer -peer network.
and it appears to decentralize power over the church and make it align with the power of the state. And of course, this is what initially motivates the Reformation, are all these principalities where princes are realizing that a privilege the Pope gives out, the privilege of being a Catholic monarch, where you control the church in your country, is one they can seize. There's a class interest on the part of a certain level of the aristocracy that initially powers the Reformation. And because of the Reformation, other more interesting religious movements uh, come to the fore with the Anabaptist movement and uh, other movements, uh, the old believers in Russia who begin to articulate um, other, uh, who begin to articulate different class interests through their Christianities, um, peasant class interests, etc. And it's in this um, chaotic environment that John Calvin appears. And Calvin puts forward a, um, a theory of Christianity that extends this principle that the Franciscans had used, the idea that consent is how you build the kingdom of God, that um, every community should be people who have voluntarily agreed to join it. That's how churches should work. That's how the state should work. And those communities will have a set of rules. If you don't like those rules, leave and make your own or leave and go to another one. And this initially is viewed as politically dangerous. It seems anarchic. There are other elements of this that have a very strong class appeal. And in particular, it's uh, Calvin's re-engagement with a long-term controversy in Christianity, the predestination controversy. So if God is all-knowing, and all-powerful, and all-loving, then surely he will know from the beginning of time who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. And so at various points in Christian history, it's then been argued, well, then God is choosing, because he creates everybody, to create a group of people who go to hell. And this seems hard to square with the idea of an all-benevolent God. The Roman Catholic Church dealt with this debate multiple times during the Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Their solution to it was propounded by Augustine of Hippo, but not very consistently. Augustine's writings on predestination are kind of all over the place, but they capture the most consistent part of the writings and argue for something called single predestination, which is the idea that no one is predestined for hell but God has selected certain people to be predestined for heaven. This is kind of an ugly fix. It doesn't really pass muster intellectually. It's the most politically palatable fix. It's the least upsetting fix. But a consequence is that predestination keeps reemerging as a controversy. And one of the most serious predestination controversies takes place in 9th century France. Uh, or rather in the Spanish March of 9th century France, which in and of itself is interesting. So the Spanish March and Septimania are these regions that today are part of Spain, but were seized by Frankish-speaking people 
to stop uh, the further Muslim conquest. So there's one actually Spanish kingdom that's a vassal of the French in the ninth century, that's Asturias. But the other kingdoms that are Christian or the other parts of Spain that, that remain majority Christian or governmentally Christian are areas that are under a Frankish military occupation. They're ruled by margraves uh, because they're part of a march. This is really the beginning of the occupation of Basque territory, for instance. So during this time, um, a, uh, one of the Franks, uh, who's uh, part of the occupation, Gottschalk, give you a sense of what Frankish is as a language at this point, um, Gottschalk argues for what, is then, what, is, what comes to be labeled double predestination. That, that this single predestination is nonsense. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then he did predestine some people for hell. And if we can't figure out how, why that's good, then that's our fucking problem. And ultimately, this destabilizes the Carolingian Empire to the point where Charles the Bald, the king of West Francia, hires the greatest logician in Western Europe, uh, an Irishman, uh, John Scotus Eriugena, to come and write a response to Gottschalk's points even though he's not a churchman at all. So Eriugen is brought in as this logician hired gun, and he offers a completely inadequate answer that is logically correct, but too weird. His argument is that um, if darkness is merely the absence of light, if good is merely, if evil is merely the absence of good, if these are not principles, the reason that um, there's all this evil in the world, the reason people go to hell, all this stuff, is that God can't see them. Because God can only see things that are. It's elegant, but upsetting. And so the work is immediately repudiated and burned. Uh, very few copies remained. Um, and at the same time, and so Gottschalk's movement is mainly put down by force. And these movements are recurrent, especially in Germanic-speaking Europe. And it's important to recognize that there's a linguistic component here. Frankish starts off as a Germanic language. Although it hybridizes heavily with Latin, it doesn't merely contain 30% Germanic words. It contains a bunch of Germanic grammatical structures. And one of the ways that uh, Frankish, or later French, is different than Spanish is that it bounds its future tense like a Germanic language. So Germanic languages are the languages of planning. We use words like will and shall all the time when we have no fucking idea what will happen. There is a bizarre overconfidence in one's oracular abilities if you are speaking a speaker of a Germanic language. The grammar of your language makes you think the, the future is far more certain and far more stable than the future empirically is. How comforting. Yes, it is one of the quirks of, um, of the Germanic peoples that um, we will render things in the future tense that no one else would render in their future tense. Half-baked schemes, this, these are the languages for them. This will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. You can't say that in Spanish. 
in Spanish, Spanish forces you to say this probably would happen, and then this probably would happen, and then this probably would happen. They use the conditional tense and the subjunctive mood to render most of the future, and we don't. There is an oracular overconfidence in the Germanic languages, and it's why double predestination shows up as a heresy among speakers of Germanic languages far more frequently and it's far harder to put down. So John Calvin fuses this incipient, always present theological movement among Germanic speakers with an incredibly powerful certainty-producing economic force. John Calvin fuses this incipient, always present theological movement among Germanic speakers with an incredibly powerful certainty-producing economic force. So it's no coincidence that the people who come up with ideas of credit are Germanic speakers. They have a greater confidence in making guesses about the future that emanates from their language. And so John Calvin recognizes a compatibility between credit and predestination. And he creates a term for this compatibility, which is signs of election. If you look at someone and they don't have an easy to draw weapon, there are no food stains on their clothes, they don't smell of booze, their clothes are well-made but not gaudy, etc., 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 you're not just seeing the fact that this person is more likely to successfully conclude a business deal with you. You're seeing that God has chosen him to live at the throne of God in heaven for the rest of time. This is Calvin's breakthrough. His signs of election are identical to signs of credit. But he argues that the things we're using to observe that people are reliable and prosperous are, the, are signs that God himself has placed upon them to show that they will live eternally. So in this way, the bourgeoisie who are administering the wool boom receive a message from the Calvinist movement that they are the chosen people. They are the elect. They, and there are all these mentions in the book of Revelation about, you know, and the interpretations of Revelation about the role of the elect in the end times. And because Calvinism is decentralized, we see its popular adoption um, spreading faster than Lutheranism. Lutheranism spreads faster than Calvinism, but it spreads at the level of the prince rather than at the level of the city. And it's no surprise that the political theories with which this is um, uh, closely allied, the idea that the city fathers and not the aristocrats should run society as a whole, helps to touch off the Dutch revolt. So the Habsburg Empire's provinces in the present-day Netherlands take Calvin's theories about um, 
uh, election, democracy, etc., and turn this into the mandate for creating a new state and a new kind of state, a networked set of cities governed by the benevolent elect. We're we're discussing the the seeds of the uh, of the nation state. Part of it is the nation state. Um, you know, in this sense, it's more the uh, the rise of the liberal or progressive subject. So in a way, we have to describe the subject before we describe the state. The state is partly a theory of authority and partly a theory of space. And the theory of authority um, that we're going to encounter in a bit, expertise, does arise out of this process. But uh, the first thing we construct, interestingly enough, right, if you're trying to construct a new kind of state, is to construct a new kind of subject. We can see from the beginning with signs of election that self-control and wealth are constitutive of subjecthood. There's no poor subject in a Calvinist state because why would a person be poor in a Calvinist state? They would have voluntarily chosen to be part of a community that was industrious and self-controlled. Therefore, they would not be poor. Similarly, there's no room for an absence of self-control. This is not something we would have been against at the time. We wouldn't have guessed how out of control this demand for self-control would become. People were living in a world of performance societies where who you aspired to be was something you had to enact maybe four hours a week that you could be a great patriarch, a great generous patriarch and family man for four hours a week at church, and the rest of the time do whatever you wanted to the women and children under your control and the servants under your control and the peasants under your control. We had an aspirational way of looking at other people's performed selves. We would, we would choose to see people as the ideal they were trying to be and occasionally pulled off. In a surveillance society, which is really what Calvin introduces, you've got to hold it together all the time. You can, like, you're going to be really uptight and twitchy, but the elect hold it together all week, every week. This is, this is the ethos of Mike Pence right? He is not going to look at any gay porn. He is going to grind his teeth and uh, stare joylessly at his wife and pull this thing off every minute of every day. Or Jason Kenney, right? Like, so you can see how this has gotten out of control and has become perverse. But if you were living in a society in which, well, you see the other theory of self-control embodied in Pence's boss, right? Donald Trump is a holy messiah, even though he's like feeling up his daughter on national television. Right. Um, so you can see how in a civilization where people were not policing themselves all the time, why the Calvinists would seem like a pretty cool social movement. Like, or, you know, even if you were like a person who had survived a lot of sexual violence, 
the Calvinists would seem like a cool movement. These are men who want to stay in control of themselves all the time. These are, are men who, are, who don't have weapons handy to hurt you or threaten you with. There's, um, there's a lot to be said for this as a social movement. Might I, might I suggest that, that the, uh, the predictability uh, of the performance uh, calms people down, potentially, or, or at least soothes people in some ways. Absolutely. Or is a, com- a comfort in some ways, yeah. Absolutely. And one of the most interesting things about Calvinist social change, Max Weber, right, the founder of sociology, wrote uh, about the Protestant work ethic and the origins of capitalism in 1901. It was the first significant rebuttal to Marxism that took in all of the profound things Marx said about the transition to capitalism and rebutted them. Um, Weber's argument was that that Calvinism not the material features of Europe, but the solely ideological features of Europe made capitalism. And he spoke in a very sophisticated way about how Calvinism acts on consciousness. So one would think that the big problem with Calvinism is you know the majority are not the elect. The majority know the majority are not the elect. The elect are a special group of people. So how could Calvinism control everyone's behavior if Calvinism doesn't even claim to be trying to control everyone's behavior, but the behavior of maybe one in four people at most? And the answer is that if you're in a surveillance society where you're surveilling yourself and you're surveilling others, what motivates you is the fear of being found out. Weber argues that nobody thought they were a member of the elect. They all thought they were pretending, up to the present day, that they're all faking it in fear of social disapproval. Society-wide. Everyone, uh, the, the nobody thinks they're going to heaven. Everybody's trying to brazen it out and pretend they're a member of the elect. And that all of these individuals pretending produces a society that is aspiring to be the elect and exerts this insane level of social control that if it were not that it ironically it's the hopeful nature of catholic doctrine that okay maybe you'll finally get it together and not screw it up that motivates you less than you've already failed you've already screwed up and if you don't hold it together everyone can tell this uh, this spreads a Calvinist ethos further and wider than imagined. Um, and it, it spreads it to poor people, for instance, right? I, I come out of a black respectability culture that's entirely based on an underclass adopting a Calvinist ethos. So we see this contagion and it moves through places where the where there are grammatical and linguistic preconditions that have been met for understanding the future to be certain. And the biggest, the widest turn Calvin makes on the teachings of Jesus. Most of his representations are pretty accurate, but one of the weirdest things about Calvinism is the idea that if you live a good life, God will reward you materially. 
You can see how it necessarily has to be baked in because of signs of election, but there's really no scriptural evidence for this at all. To go back to your question earlier about the role of scripture and the written word, both Luther and Calvin argue against, argue that this whole bullshit about the oral tradition of equal uh, uh, of equal power and relevance to scripture itself, the Episcopal tradition, both of them argue against this to greater or lesser degrees, Calvin to the greater degree, Luther to the lesser degree. And they both argue that scripture in and of itself can act on the human mind, that it is our best shot. That's why we have to translate the Bible into the vernacular, blah, blah, blah. But neither of these traditions can actually imagine an uninformed, barely literate person opening the Bible and knowing what it means. That's a bridge too far. It's just simply universal common knowledge that you need tremendous education to interpret a holy text. And so while they come out with this principle of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture, they can't imagine its implementation. It's like thinking of the American founding fathers imagining a nation of 340 million one-person militias. In 1978, science historian James Burke premiered his television show Connections on the BBC. Connections looked at a single seemingly insignificant event or artifact and showed how it was connected to profound shifts uh, throughout history, tracing the object's provenance forwards and backwards through the centuries. In 1985, the day the universe changed followed up Connections, again hosted by Burke, shows that helped to inspire a generation to be curious about the interactions between economics, science, and history. Dan Jennison, our interviewer, and I are very thankful for the contributions of James Burke and wish to dedicate this show to him on behalf of Los Altos Radio Archive.